welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 18th, 2024. I am your reader, Sharon Faldudo, and we look at the front page of today's Gazette, Theater Cedar Rapids Transitions into Next Century. Changes continue for troupe that Grant Wood and Friends founded by Diana Nolan of the Gazette. Grant Wood's legacy not only is on view at the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art, it's on view every time the doors open at Theater Cedar Rapids. Everyone who stands on stage and behind the scenes is standing on the shoulders of Eastern Iowa's most famous son, who gathered his close friends in 1925 to perform Cardboard Moon in his studio at 5 Turner Alley in Cedar Rapids. Their efforts brought the big city little theater movement intended to preserve community theaters to Cedar Rapids, launching a local endeavor that would evolve over the next century into Theater Cedar Rapids, said to be the state's largest nonprofit producing theater, and fueled this year by a $3.5 million budget. On the precipice of its centennial celebration, TCR, as it's commonly known, is in a transitional phase as it seeks to keep up with demand to transform the more unused spaces within its downtown building to house classrooms, rehearsals, and smaller performances. It's also addressing and reflecting changes in the business model for nonprofit community theaters, recently offering an honorarium for actors and technicians who traditionally have served as volunteers. Off-site, the scene shop has moved out of the Cherry Building's third floor and into a larger space with a first-floor loading dock at 407 9th Avenue Southeast. The 50,000-square-foot shop also has storage room for scenery pieces, some of which will be sold to other theaters, and another 25,000 square feet houses TCR's costume shop. Costume storage for multiples of particular pieces, such as uniforms, as well as hand props, is on the third floor of the Hatch Building downtown. The theater leases those auxiliary sites, which total 100,000 square feet. In 1983, the Lingy family gave the organization its current home in the 1928 Iowa Theater Building at 1st Avenue and 3rd Street Southeast. Small businesses occupied the peripheral spaces until the flood of 2008, when a capital campaign, donations, and federal funds allowed the theater to renovate, reimagine spaces, and become the lone occupant of the five-story, 50,000-square-foot downtown building. That $7.8 million building project included moving administrative offices to the second floor, creating the first floor Lingy Lounge, carving out new rehearsal rooms, and adding the Grandin Studio, a lower-level black box theater with 85 seats. The first floor auditorium seats 550, and the newly added out-of-doors productions at Bruce Moore seat 250 on bring-your-own-blankets and long chairs. Still, many spaces inside the main building sit empty. TCR is in the very early stages of mapping out a capital campaign to address an expansion within its footprint. We don't have room for our own demand, said Katie Hallman, 38 of Cedar Rapids, TCR's executive director since March 16, 2017. TCR is doing so well, I feel tremendously grateful and certainly fortunate. With hard work, including the theater's weathering in response to the pandemic, TCR was able to keep moving forward, she said. We just continue to be on this trajectory of strength and sustainability. High-level productions aren't financed on the fly. Auditorium show investment is always in the six figures, averaging at about $200,000 per production, Holman noted, adding that shows at the Grandin Studio run about $45,000. With higher production costs come higher ticket prices, topping out at $75 for the recent holiday show, The Wizard of Oz, and $59 for the currently running Something Rotten. But 10% to 20% of all seats are priced at $25, as are all student tickets, Holman noted, and at other price points in between. Tickets for the smaller studio shows run about $15 to $30. TCR produces theater 42 weekends per year, Holman said, as well as classes for all ages and abilities. Funding comes 60% from earned income, which includes ticket sales, and 40% from contributions. Nearly 45,000 visitors come to the theater each year from more than 70 communities. The honoraria for ages 16 and up, first offered to the cast and crew of The Wizard of Oz, is a welcome addition for cast members who typically rehearse most nights for six weeks, followed by another four weeks of more performances, as well as for the crew members who tend to come on board closer to production dates and stay through the run. The Something Rotten 25 cast members will receive $25 per show, totaling $375 apiece, and the 19 crew members will receive $20 a show, totaling $300 apiece. Some have opted out, preferring to volunteer their time, Holman said. But for University of Iowa student siblings Brandon and Carissa Burkhart of Coralville, the payment eases their financial costs on several fronts. Our biz biggest expense when doing a TCR show is gas, said Brandon, 24, who will graduate in May. 
His sister, 21, has a few semesters to go before she finishes work on four degrees. Both are concentrating on performance and education. Brandon has been in 10 TCR shows with lead roles including The Prince in Cinderella and The Tin Man in Oz before his latest leading role in Something Rotten. Carissa has been in eight TCR shows, beginning as a featured dancer and ensemble member in Cinderella, Esther in Meet Me in St. Louis, and various dance duties and spotlights in Something Rotten. Jake Steiger's 55 of Cedar Rapids is the longest tenured actor in the current show, his 24th, having jumped aboard Big River in 1991. He left Cedar Rapids for Chicago in July 2000 and returned to his hometown in 2014. He's seen the building's physical changes from the addition of a spiral staircase to the basement on the right side of the stage, making it less disruptive to run from side to side, to the revamped cast and crew amenities in the basement green room and dressing rooms, and the larger accessible rehearsal spaces upstairs. From the acting point of view, Steiger said the professional staff members who build the sets, make the costumes, and play in the orchestra pit are really high caliber, and lift the actors to a higher level than they thought they could perform. Also, when he came back to town, he found an embarrassment of riches as Ferrara's theater for actors and for audiences, and there was tons of support in this area for troops such as TCR, Revival Theater, and RHCR Theater in Cedar Rapids, and Giving Tree Theater in Marion. What city has that? Matt Hegmeyer Curtis, 41, a theater professional now living in Boston, was tapped to return to his hometown to direct something rotten. He found a place full of changes since his student days in youth theater touring shows and main stage productions such as Hello, Dolly, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and Tommy. When Curtis started attending TCR shows in his childhood, something opened up inside of him, something that made him want to pursue theater from middle school onward. He continues to reap those rewards working in the educational realm as the content and marketing director for the Educational Theater Association, a national organization for theater teachers, which also runs the International Thespian Society and its summer festival. I really believe that making theater makes us better people, he said. Things that are really hard to quantify academically, like problem-solving skills, collaboration, empathy, having a sense of greater working toward a greater good. These are qualities that a lot of executives in finance, in research, in science, they look for these things. In theater, they're intrinsic. If you, if you make theater, you get those skills, and we're constantly working on to hone them. As Theater Cedar Rapids looks toward the next 100 years, the organization and its leaders must live in the present with an eye on the past as well as the future. My job is to be a steward in this moment of this theater's long history, Hallman said. I take that very seriously. It is not lip service and it's not a talking point because this place is so much bigger than all of us. So all I can do is my very best and charge the board of my staff and our teams in everything we do to just do our very best to ensure the future of this place that none of us will be around to see. Also from today's front page, flawed student aid rollout royals schools across Iowa by Vanessa Miller of the Gazette. By the end of the first week of this month, the number of students at Jefferson High School in Cedar Rapids who had submitted a free application for federal student aid, a gateway to higher education for many, was just 61, fewer than half the 125 Jefferson applications submitted through the same period last year. In a Cedar Rapids Community School District boarding 57% of students eligible for free or reduced price lunch this year, nearby Kennedy High School had 111 FAFSA applications submitted as of February 2nd about 65% of the 172 submitted over the same period last year. And none of the 380 high schools in Iowa are reporting any completed FAFSA applications this year, where schools such as Iowa City High last year had 176 completed through February 2nd, simply because they can't, thanks to rampant delays and what some have called a smorgasbord of errors and glitches. The FAFSA delays have taken a toll on students and parents. Katie Anderson, college and career transition counselor for Solon High School, told the Gazette, the only thing I can tell them is that it is not just them, to remember that this is happening for everyone, and you just need to be patient at this point. But seniors are getting antsy as their final high school semester ticks down. Counselors are getting nervous as frustrated students consider higher ed alternatives, and colleges and universities are getting overwhelmed with process glitches, anxious about what the issues could mean for enrollment, and creative about how to navigate the novel complexities and help others do the same. Low-income and first-generation students are really impacted, Anderson said, especially when they are relying on financial help and are trying to make their final college decision based on what financial support they may be getting from different institutions. Today's new FAFSA flaws are an outgrowth of efforts to resolve old ones through a FAFSA Simplification Act passed in December 2020. Among the biggest changes was to cut the number of questions by two-thirds from 108 to 36, 
and amend question language to make it easier to understand. The law also created a new platform so students could import tax information and expanded the living expenses allowance included as part of the cost to attend college in hopes of addressing food and shelter insecurity among students. But even in 2022, with the long-awaited FAFSA simplification looming for the 24-25 academic year, some financial aid officers and administrators expressed skepticism the U.S. Department of Education would be ready. Waiting to see what the new forms would look like, how they would comply with new rules, and how eligibility would be calculated going forward, counselors, advocates, and families voiced concern. In the best of circumstances, schools will be stressed about the department's ability to pull this off. Justin Drager, president and CEO of the National Association of Student Financial Aid Administrators, told Inside Higher Ed in October 2022, I would say we are not under the best of circumstances. Fast forward to fall 2023, with 17 million plus students expected to file a FAFSA for help covering college, those concerns manifest with the start of the new filing season. Typically released on October 1st, the new FAFSA saw repeat delays, with many prospective applicants reporting struggles with access even after its soft launch on December 30th, three months late. On January 8th, in the week after the delayed update went live, the U.S. Department of Education announced it had received more than 1 million FAFSA applications to attend college between July, 4th, July 1st, 2024, and June 30th, 2025. But the hiccups continued, and the department January 30th announced more problems, keeping campuses from getting student applications federal aid information until March at the soonest. Churning out aid offers can take weeks once universities receive student applicant information from the federal government, which has campuses worried about the potential impact on students, including those who need financial help to even consider post-secondary education. I think this is a concern for higher education in general, said Cornell's Schradel about a higher ed landscape recently updated by COVID-19 and the departures it prompted among students who were either repelled by the virtual experience, concerned about viral spread, or financially unable given personal or family demands. The National Association for College Admission Counseling, NACAC, has been very vocal about what this could do to the image of higher ed. Russ Johnson, a counselor with the Iowa City Community School District, said although families who do get into the new FAFSA system have found the forms easy to complete, students have and continue to have a multitude of issues. I do think the FAFSA delays have had a negative impact on the number of students submitting college applications, especially first-generation college students or students with limited knowledge of the college admission process, Johnson said. A decrease in the number of applications submitted by students from underrepresented populations will likely mean a decrease in the number of those students attending college in 24-25. With Iowa's demographics shifting to more low-income and minority high schoolers, including those who would be the first in their family to attend college, UI's Bozinski said resolving the FAFSA issues is essential. Navigating completing the 24-25 FAFSA form may be challenging for first-generation college students, students with non-English-speaking parents, and those who may not have resources readily available to complete online forms, Bozinski said. Without information on age, he said, some students might choose to start working instead, at least for a year. And then, Bozinski said, they run the risk of never returning. The most vulnerable populations may be the most inversely impacted by these Department of Education delays, she said. No longer do we have a level playing field. Also quoted in this article is my husband, Kirkwood Financial Aid Director, Senior Financial Aid Director Matt Faldudo. A large number of students need aid to pursue college, quote, and we can't really tell them because we don't have any FAFSA data to help them. We can just speak in generalities, which is really hard on students and families because they're trying to figure out, can we afford this? Turning to the Iowa Today and the Week in Iowa, a recap of news from across the state under the heading In the News, Key bills passed legislative funnel deadline. Iowa lawmakers worked late into the evening last week to move legislation ahead of the first legislative funnel deadline. Friday marked the last day for most bills to pass out of committees and remain eligible for consideration for the rest of the session. Majority Republicans advanced bills regulating the state's area education agencies, changing election procedures, addressing traffic safety, and cracking down on unlawful immigration. Democrats roundly criticized Republicans' priorities this session, calling their agenda an attack on Iowans and charging they are not addressing real needs. Bill would limit Trump ballot challenges. Iowa GOP lawmakers advanced a bill last week to change Iowa's elections, including preventing eligibility challenges to Donald Trump's place on the ballot on constitutional grounds. The bill would limit eligibility challenges for federal candidates to the legal sufficiency of the petition and residency, age, and citizenship requirement in the U.S. Constitution. 
proposal would allow audit agencies to bypass state audits. Iowa Republicans advanced a bill that would allow state and local agencies to hire private accounting firms to audit their finances and bypass the elected state auditor. State Auditor Rob Sand is the only statewide elected Democrat in Iowa, and his office called the bill a recipe for corruption. Republicans said it would provide flexibility while maintaining accountability. Iowa's Caitlin Clark breaks scoring record. University of Iowa point guard Caitlin Clark became the highest scoring player in NCAA women's basketball history on Thursday, sinking three consecutive shots to sail past the previous record of 3,527 points. The Hawkeye star overtook Kelsey Plum, who set the record in 2017. Clark set the record with a 33-foot three-pointer from the logo barely two minutes into the game, in which she scored a career-high 49 points. The effort brought Clark's career total to 3,569 points. The sold-out Carver-Hawkeye Arena crowd broke into chance of one more year during the game. Clark is eligible for a fifth season because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Bill increases nursing home oversight. A bill advancing in the legislature would require state officials to conduct training twice a year with nursing homes and inspectors to cover some of the most frequent complaints lodged in the previous year. Nursing homes have been under scrutiny in recent years as reports of deaths, abuse, and neglect have increased. House GOP proposes AEA bill. Iowa House Republicans are considering a rival proposal to Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' bill to overhaul the state area education agencies that provide special education support and other services to Iowa school districts. The House bill would allow schools to keep their state special education funding, but unlike Reynolds' bill, would require them to spend that money with the AEA rather than another party. Under the heading, they said... If I could summarize it in one sentence, it would be that the bills that came out of committee in the last few days is really an attack on Iowans rather than an attack on the problems that Iowans have asked us to solve. Senate Minority Leader Pam Yoakum, Democrat Dubuque. And, we wanted to provide certainty for special education. We took Iowans' feedback that we've been having in our meetings and realized how important that was, and we feel our plan provides that certainty in the future when it comes to special education. Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican New Hartford. Under the heading Odds and Ends, Pesticide Protections. Pesticide manufacturers would have legal immunity from lawsuits over health risks if their products have a federally approved warning label under a bill Republican lawmakers advanced this week. The bill was proposed by Bayer, the pharmaceutical company that manufactures Roundup. Traffic Cameras. A bill tying together a ban on cell phone use while driving with a ban on traffic cameras is under consideration in the Iowa legislature. Proposals for both measures have been around for years but have failed to gather enough support. Law enforcement officials implored lawmakers last week to separate the distracted driving ban and pass it as a standalone bill. They said traffic cameras help reduce accidents and uphold traffic laws. Under the heading Water Cooler, Police Chief Convicted, the Adair Police Chief was convicted by a federal jury this week of lying to authorities to acquire machine guns that he then sold for profit. Authorities say Brad Wendt lied to obtain the machine guns for his police department and sold them for $80,000 personal profit. And birth control. Iowa lawmakers are again considering a bill to allow women to buy birth control without a prescription. The patient would need to follow up with a doctor after two years to continue receiving the medication. Turning to the Insight page, Althea Cole writes in her To a Candid World column, Proposed Election Law Changes, The Good, Bad, and Ugly. Last week was funnel week at the Iowa State House, the deadline for legislation to pass out of committee in order to stay eligible for consideration. One of the bills surviving the funnel was House Study Bill 697, a bill which, if enacted, would implement another round of broad changes to Iowa's election process. I'll pause here to remind readers that I am also employed on demand by my home county as an election official to help lead early voting before most elections. Accordingly, I have thoughts on HSB 697, Thoughts that are, for clarity's sake, my own and not those of my county election department. Some parts of HSB 697 seem pretty good. Some parts seem kind of bad. One in particular is just plain ugly. Good, early voting earlier. HSB 697 would increase the early voting period from 20 to 22 days. Without extending it too far, there is such a thing as voting too early. Two extra days pad that time frame slightly, even after losing a day on the back end for mail ballots. Bad. Absentee ballot deadline bumped up. Three years ago, an absentee ballot returned through the mail required a postmark or postal service barcode from no later than the day before the election in order to count. A ballot bearing either of those could arrive as late as noon on Monday after the election and still count. 
Legislation in 2021 did away with the postmark barcode provision and replaced it with a hard deadline for receipt of absentee ballots. Instead of the day preceding the election, absentee ballots currently can be received at the auditor's office as late as the closing of the polls on election day. Under HSB 697, that hard deadline for absentee ballot receipt would revert to the close of the business day before the election while still prohibiting postmark allowances. It's a change I urge against as its primary and perhaps only result would be the disqualification of ballots cast in good faith before polling places close on election day, ballots which would have counted only months earlier. I'm a staunch supporter of reasonable election security measures. I can't think of any ways in which election integrity would be bolstered by this change to a degree that warrants it. Good. Ranked choice voting banned. I could go into detail and have previously explaining why I hate the concept of ranked choice voting. The overarching reason is that ranked choice voting, or RCV, also called instant runoff voting, or IRV, creates a confusing process that risks disenfranchising voters. Not everyone is going to grasp how to properly mark a ballot that looks a bit reminiscent of a Powerball ticket, with a whole grid of bubbles needing to be filled out just so. Explaining it to puzzled voters also would require a lot of extra time and attention from election officials, potentially hindering the voting process. As I wrote in May 22, state law does not prescribe a process for ranked choice voting, so no voting jurisdiction can actually utilize it. But given that RCV or IRV is an organized movement in many states, including Iowa, an explicit prohibition helps close that door. I'd be happy to keep it shut. Bad. Ballot drop boxes banned. HSB 697 repeals legislation enacted only three years ago, allowing for a single drop box at each county auditor's office for the secure, no-contact return of absentee ballots at all hours. The 2021 legislation codified some of the guidance issued by Secretary of State Paul Pate in September 2020, which prohibited county auditors from placing drop boxes in multiple locations around the community, such as grocery stores. In terms of election security, an argument can be made against ballot drop boxes in places not constantly monitored by the county. That argument does not, however, extend to a single receptacle placed right outside the auditor's office and subject to strict security requirements, including round-the-clock video surveillance. Unless multiple instances of election fraud have been spotted and directly attributed to drop boxes, no sufficient reason exists to remove them in the name of preventing the same. Legislators shouldn't strike the part of Iowa code that allows them. They should strike the part of this bill that would ban them. Good. New voter, new voter verification program. Iowa's withdrawal from the Electronic Registration Information Center, or ERIC, a multi-state cooperative designed for the exchange of information for states to verify their voters' eligibility, is not as controversial as some have intimated. It wasn't fueled by any particular extreme right-wing election fraud conspiracy theories. Iowa Secretary of State Paul Pate and his staff have actually gone to considerable lengths to reject denialist myths about election security. Instead, the departure of other states made the program less valuable overall to the point where the benefits of participation were no longer enough to justify meeting its conditions, improvements to which were rejected by other ERIC member states. Now that ties have been cut, Iowa needs a new program to verify voter eligibility. HSB 697 greenlights efforts to create a program more conducive to Iowa's election integrity goals. Thumbs up. Good. Previous legal issues can't disqualify federal candidates. HSB 697 exempts candidates for federal office from being disqualified from the ballot for past felony convictions or other infamous crimes. Should we call that the Trump Clause? Sure, if you want. Former President Donald Trump, who is all but certain to be the Republican nominee for president this November, is facing a mountain of felony charges, a number of which could result in a conviction before Election Day. It takes quite a lot of nerve to call a bill an election integrity bill when the point of the bill is to let felons run for office, said Representative Adam Zabner, a freshman Democrat from Iowa City during a hearing for HSB 697, and particularly someone like Donald Trump who has so little integrity. Zabner's remarks about felons as federal candidates may have been aimed at Trump, but they attack every person with a felony conviction who has put that part of their lives behind them. That's a large group of which Trump is not yet a member. Does Zabner believe that letting felons run for office is a threat to election integrity? He wouldn't be the first politician to contradict the position of his own party, nor would he be the first to let hatred for Trump fool him into betraying his liberal principles. But Zabner's lapse in judgment shouldn't be suffered by those ready to reclaim the full duties and privileges of citizenship. As many as 45,000 Iowans with felony convictions had their voting rights, including the right to run for public office, restored by Governor Kim Reynolds via Executive Order 7 on August 5, 2020. Since then, the order has been reissued daily to apply to eligible ex-felons whose sentences were discharged after EO7 was signed. 
Currently, it is only via EO7 that eligible people with felony convictions can run for any office in Iowa, unless they follow the older, more cumbersome process of applying for and receiving a restoration of those rights or a presidential pardon. State House Republicans do favor amending the Iowa Constitution to restore voting rights to most ex-felons, but a consensus on the specifics has yet to be reached. <clears throat> An amendment wouldn't take effect until after the 2028 presidential election at the earliest, which is unlikely. The exemption in HSB 697 would ensure that any federal candidate in Iowa with a felony conviction <clears throat> could not, would not be dependent on Reynolds' executive order should she leave office for any reason and her successor declines to continue it. That would make an okay stopgap until legislators and voters approve that constitutional amendment. Ugly. Eligibility challenges limited to legal sufficiency. HSB 697 also limits legal objections to a federal candidate's eligibility to whether their nomination papers read the requirements in Iowa Code or whether their residency, age, or citizenship meet the requirement of the U.S. Constitution. This is undoubtedly a Trump clause proposed for good reason. Some states are actively working to keep Trump off the ballot by finding him guilty of insurrection and declaring him disqualified from holding office. By limiting candidate challenges to their legal sufficiency, Iowa would signal its rejection of these extrajudicial actions that other states have chosen to take. That's neither a good nor a bad thing. It's flat-out ugly. It's ugly because legislation like this isn't just merited, it's warranted. It's ugly because it means we've reached the point where we need to clarify that extrajudicial actions like those won't fly in the state of Iowa. It's ugly because some jurisdictions have already chosen to punish Trump for a crime of which he's not only never been convicted, he's never been charged. That's right, of Donald Trump's many felony indictments, none are for insurrection. None. It's ugly because hundreds of thousands of American voters will be disenfranchised from exercising their rights if those extrajudicial actions prevail. And it is a disgustingly ugly reality that so many citizens whose rights and freedoms thrive under the legal framework of innocent until proven guilty would gladly see a person robbed of their due process out of nothing more than politically motivated hatred. Bill includes even more changes. Believe it or not, my little analysis doesn't cover the whole range of tweaks to Iowa's election system <clears throat> that HSB 697 proposes. Your friendly neighborhood opinion columnist slash election worker is hoping that the bill will not be a done deal by the time we pick this conversation back up next week. Hopefully, legislation with this much for Iowa to talk about is given enough time for legislators to talk about it, too. And Todd Dorman writes in his 24-hour Dorman, Iowa's capital is awash in bad water quality bills. Iowa's legislature is under a red flag warning. No dry conditions <clears throat> are not raising fire conditions under our golden dome of wisdom, now redder than ever. It's actually about water, specifically Iowa's dirty water. So are lawmakers making things better? Nope. I think we're seeing a lot of bills that raise red flags, said Alicia Vasto, Water Program Assistant Director for the Iowa Environmental Council. Part of her job is to monitor statehouse actions affecting water. Vasto has been very busy during the current legislative confab. It feels like it has been busy and in a bad way, Vasto told me. So many red flags, you might think it's an old Soviet May Day parade, and many remain flying as lawmakers pass the first funnel deadline. No matter how the dust settles, pollution from cropland flowing into Iowa's waterways will continue unabated. We have two water quality dead zones, one in the Gulf of Mexico and one at the State House. Among this year's greatest hits are the bills that would limit the Department of Natural Resources' ability to accept donated land, open a new loophole in Iowa's manure manufacturing plan, requirements for livestock feedlots and change the way watershed management authorities operate. There's a bill that would prohibit local governments from approving rules requiring the replacement of topsoil on finished building sites. Legislation would relieve pesticide companies from litigation over long-term health effects, and Governor Kim Reynolds' executive order centralizing her control over state regulations could be made law. There was one really good bill, a measure that would require riparian buffer strips on cropland bordering rivers, streams, drainage dishes, etc., Many farmers are already using buffers, so it seems like a slam dunk. But the bill offered by Democrats didn't even get a hearing. The bill affecting watershed management authorities has been a moving target. It was sold as a way to help WMAs partner with local governments on flood protection while emphasizing Iowa's voluntary nutrient reduction plan. But it removed language allowing WMAs to assess water quality. State officials worry that volunteers lack the expertise. The name of WMAs would change to Watershed Management Partnership, in the water quality debate, partnership often means it will be the great for photo ops, but not so great for water. The bill's sponsor, Representative Norman Norlin Momsen, Republican DeWitt, has pledged to rework the bill to address concerns, but some, some lawmakers aren't convinced. Some people refer to the state's NRS as the nutrient reduction suggestions rather than a strategy. That is a voluntary program, some of which we'll fund and others we won't, said Representative Chuck Eisenhardt, Democrat Dubuque, according to the Dubuque Telegraph-Herald. 
it will make it much more difficult to address some of the other issues that are important in our watershed. Flood risk and protection, some of the emerging threats such as PFAs and threats to drinking water supplies, especially in the karst area like northeast Iowa, that those watershed management authorities would like to focus on, that maybe they won't be able to once they're put wholly in service of the nutrient reduction suggestions, Eisenhart said. The good news is a bill altering manure management rules has been considerably scaled back. The bad news is it remains a lousy bill. It's intended to allow livestock producers with open feedlots to spread manure on fields while still seeking approval of a nutrient management plan. It's intended to be an emergency measure to avoid a water quality violation, but Vasto contends the bill actually opens a loophole. It leaves a big loophole and creates perverse incentives, Vasto said in an email. An open feedlot owner can start operating, wait until their basin is almost full, risking water quality violations, then in quick succession submit an NMP, call DNR, and land apply the manure, even if the NMP is deficient and ultimately disapproved. She notes the bill would allow a producer to do the same thing every year. Producers can reduce their risk by submitting a nutrient plan only in case of emergency, and the DNR is not required to keep records of the manure application requests. The public basically never gets to weigh in on or even learn about what's happening, Vasto said. Also under the amended but still lousy category is the bill prohibiting local governments from requiring topsoil replacement on finished building sites. An amendment to the bill would allow cities to require stricter rules if officials are willing to pay for them. It also allows local governments to forge agreements with developers on enhanced rules. So the burden of requiring the replacement of topsoil, which slows runoff, mitigates flash flooding, and improves water quality would likely fall on taxpayers. The land use bill would bar the DNR from bidding on land at auction or acquiring land from a nonprofit that bought the land at auction. This is the latest effort to thwart the addition of conservation land so farmers can buy the land. More than 24 million acres of cropland in Iowa simply isn't enough. Under another bill, pesticide companies that put certain labeling on their products would be protected from litigation pertaining to long-term exposure. So if someone who regularly used a product develops cancer in 30 years, the companies are off the hook. Last, but potentially the most significant bill, would give the governor's office far more control of administrative rules that carry out laws. One fun feature in every rule would be subject to pre-clearance by the administrative rules coordinator, who serves at the pleasure of the governor. And if you're waiting for lawmakers to approve a sales tax increase to fill the Natural Resources and Outdoor Recreation Trust Fund, you'd better get comfortable. It's not happening anytime soon. None of this is terribly surprising. Agriculture gets protection, loopholes and no requirements whatsoever to stem the tide of pollution running off cropland. Our waters and Iowans who want to enjoy them get the shaft. We'd be better off if the legislature did nothing on water quality. Instead, we get a fleet of red flags. Maybe this summer they can use them to close beaches. Community Letters and the editorial cartoon this week from Clay Bennett, a syndicated cartoonist distributed by Counterpoint Media. It's a pair of hands who appear to be marking a ballot. The ballot says 2024 presidential election, choose one, and our two choices are old or evil. The first letter is from Will Hatch of Ely. Ashley Hinson leads on border security. The border crisis has gotten totally out of hand. It gets worse and worse every single month, impacting states far beyond Texas and Arizona like Iowa. Joe Biden stopped wall construction the first day he took office. It is an open borders administration, a total lawless free-for-all for illegal immigrants at the border. It has to be called out. Our Congresswoman Ashley Hinson has been taking this fight to the Biden administration. She is right in pointing out that Biden alone created this crisis and calling on him to build the wall and enforce laws that stop illegal immigration. Congresswoman Hinson and Governor Kim Reynolds have both been leaders on this issue, a real contrast to Democrats who advocate for unchecked illegal immigration regardless of the consequences to America. Will Hatch of Ely. Next, Thomas Cook, 1st Lieutenant, U.S. Army, Vietnam of Iowa City, writes Miller Meeks isn't fighting for veterans. On February 8th, Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks posted a picture on X, formerly Twitter, of her meeting with officials from the Iowa Department of Veterans Affairs, or IDVA. She correctly stated that Iowa is home to nearly 175,000 men and women who have served bravely in our armed forces. She went on to say, I will continue to fight for these men and women every day in Congress. However, in 2022, she and Representative Ashley Hinson both voted against the Honoring Our Pact, or Promise to Address Comprehensive Toxics, Act that expanded VA health care and benefits for veterans exposed to burn pits, radiation, Agent Orange, and other toxic substances. The bill was supported by 11 veteran service organizations and has been recognized as the most comprehensive legislation targeting military toxic exposure since the Vietnam War. In this election year, Representative Miller-Meeks is using a smiling photo and nice words to convince Iowa veterans she has been fighting for them every day in Congress. She isn't fooling me. Don't let her fool you. 
Thomas Cook, 1st Lieutenant, U.S. Army, Vietnam of Iowa City. Next, Scott Byram of Iowa City writes, Reynolds' visit to southern border, another political stunt. Governor Kim Reynolds will not spend federal money to help feed hungry children in Iowa during the summer months, but she will spend federal money to participate in another piece of political performance art at the Texas-Mexico border. Governor, if you like it so much down there, why don't you just stay? Take some of your fellow travelers with you. All y'all aren't doing much good up here. Scott Byram of Iowa City. Next, Barbara Hannon of Cedar Rapids writes, Iowa GOP answering to Trump on border bill. Iowa's Republican delegation constantly rants about the crisis at the border, demanding something be done. Well, they had their chance to vote for the border bill. The bill was bipartisan, endorsed by the Border Patrol Union, and contained the very things Republicans have been demanding. Yet every single one of Iowa's congressional representatives voted against it. The reason they all voted no was because they were told to vote no by Donald Trump, who wants nothing done so he can use the border chaos as a campaign issue in November. So these representatives elected by us apparently really work for Donald Trump and not us, the people who elected them. Their behavior is hypocritical and shameful. None of them better complain any more about the border. In the, next, in the next election, I would suggest people vote for candidates who work for us and not quake in fear and kneel down at the feet of Donald Trump. Barbara Hannon of Cedar Rapids. Next, David Huddle of Cedar Rapids writes Objects and Principles Found in Preamble. The Iowa legislature is considering a bill to require the singing of the national anthem every morning. As a former semi-professional singer, let me assure you that this song is not easy to sing and the cacophony every morning might send some teachers to early retirement. Also a consideration is the instruction of the objects and principles of the United States government. This is easy beyond peradventure. The preamble to the Constitution clearly states the object and principle of the United States government. You can look it up. The purpose is to provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, establish justice, and ensure domestic tranquility. David Huddle of Cedar Rapids. The final letter is from Stephanie Manning of Iowa City. Celebrate Dr. King at Riverside Theater. We recently celebrated MLK Day as a nation. If you weren't able to find a way to honor this day due to the extremely cold weather, I would like to offer an upcoming play at Riverside Theater in Iowa City. The Mountaintop by Katori Hall will be playing February 23rd through March 10th. It is a gripping reimagination of the night before Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. My husband and I were fortunate enough to see this play in New York City with Angela Bassett and Samuel L. Jackson, and we are looking forward to seeing it again at this professional theater in Iowa City. Consider honoring Dr. King and treating yourself to a theatrical performance that will live in your memory for years to come. Stephanie Manning of Iowa City. And some quotes of the week. State Senator Tony Bisignano, Democrat Des Moines, speaking against a bill allowing an Iowa government agency or official to hire a private accountant to perform an annual audit, bypassing the elected state auditor, Senator Biznano said, this bill shouldn't be here. There's no reason for it. We have an auditor. Let him audit. That's what the people of Iowa elected was the auditor to audit, and you're neutering him with this bill. Next, Tracy Davey, who lives two blocks from the Procter & Gamble manufacturing plant in Iowa City, posing the company's expansion plan. That, to me, screams this is definitely an environmental justice issue. I would hope that it means something to the city council. Next, Republican State Representative Bobby Kaufman responding to Democratic Representative Amy Nielsen after she told Kaufman to stop interrupting me during a hearing on a bill that would change election laws. Kaufman said, this is my subcommittee and I'll refer to whoever I want to refer to whenever I want to refer to them. You don't run this meeting, Representative Nielsen. Next, Democratic State Representative Amy Nielsen explaining why she walked out of the meeting. I think it was made pretty clear that what I had to say was not well received, did not want to be heard. If I can't be heard, why am I here? And finally, Captain David Dostal, newly hired Cedar Rapids Police Chief. I am all about being in partnership with all the community. I firmly believe that develops the trust. It's a two-way street. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 18, 2024. I'm your reader, Sharon Falduto, on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. And turning to the obituaries, we have two other notices. Frederick A. Ruxica, age 83, died February 15th. Papage Cuba Funeral Service of Cedar Rapids. And Ashley Aaron Bursing, age 39, died February 13th, Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service. John Bernard Sheehan, known as Barney, age 88, passed away peacefully on February 9th at Terrace Glen Village in Marion. The family will greet friends from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, February 24th at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Marion with a funeral mass following at 10.30 a.m. The burial will be held after the mass at Oakshade Cemetery in Marion. John retired from General Motors slash AC Delco after 30-plus years of service. He enjoyed traveling. He also enjoyed spending time with his family and watching the Iowa Hawkeyes and Notre Dame fighting Irish. Shirley Jennings, age 94, of the Methwick community, died Sunday, February 11th at the Woodlands of the Methwick in Cedar Rapids. 
A memorial service will be 9 a.m. Monday, February 26th at First Presbyterian Church, Marion, performed by Jim Langley. Visitation will follow for an hour. <coughs> Her body has been donated by the College of Medicine at the University of Iowa. As a minister's wife, Shirley taught Sunday church school classes and conducted Bible studies in church women's groups. She was ordained as a deacon, serves as a deacon for First Presbyterian Church in Marion. Shirley wrote two books of children's talks, which were published, and wrote abstracts of Christian education articles, notes of interest to Christian educators, which were published quarterly in Church Teachers Magazine. She was a member of First Presbyterian Church of Marion. Barbara Jo Edwards, age 76, known as Barb of Cedar Rapids, passed away February 11th in her home, surrounded by family. A celebration of life gathering will be from 2 to 5 p.m. Saturday, March 9th, at the Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids, 2121 Bowling Street Southwest. Barb spent her free time camping and traveling to many different parks. She participated in favorite activities and cheering on Iowa and Iowa State sports. She very much enjoyed challenging anyone to a game of euchre and going to different casinos. She worked at a longtime career at Whirlpool. Walter Dale Cook, age 87, of Walker, died February 7th. The family will host a celebration of life at a later date. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Center Point assisted the family. Walter worked for Rockwell Collins until his retirement in 1991. He was a member of the Iowa Firemen's Association. He had been a volunteer fireman since 1958 and served on the Walker Fire Department for 35 years and as fire chief for a few years. He enjoyed stock car racing and attending happy hour with his friends. Mary Christine Peck, age 73, died February 16th at her home in Fairfax following a lengthy battle with cancer. The visitation will be held at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home on February 20th from 4 to 7 p.m. A funeral mass will be held at St. Jude Catholic Church on Wednesday, February 21st at 10 a.m. Burial will be at St. Joseph Catholic Cemetery. Chris spent her early career working as a dental assistant before returning to the profession to raise a family. She would return, spending many years working for Dr. Burkhoff before retiring from Drs. Tyler, Lincoln, Barnes in 2014. She was a charter member of St. Jude's Church, serving throughout the years as a hospitality minister and volunteer. Kristen Tams Rowland of Cedar Rapids passed away February 11th at the age of 87 in Cedar Rapids. She was born in Copenhagen, Denmark, and immigrated to the U.S. in the early 50s. She was a wonderful mother and friend, known for elaborate smorgasbords and unmatched hospitality. She was well-loved among the community in Iowa and Southern California. The memorial service will be private, with only close family members present. Nancy Peterson Snyder, age 85, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully on January 31st, surrounded by her loving family. A memorial service will be held 11 a.m. Saturday, February 24th, at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories, 4200 First Avenue Northeast in Cedar Rapids. The burial will be at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. A visitation luncheon will follow. Nancy enjoyed teaching elementary school. She was active in the Junior League of Cedar Rapids and volunteered at Grantwood Elementary. She was also full of surprises. Few would suspect that it was Nancy and not her husband who taught their son Pete his DIY handyman skills. Indeed, it was not uncommon for the kids to come home from school to find their mother knee-deep in a massive home improvement project surrounded by power tools. Laura May Usher, age 89, of Cedar Rapids, died February 15th peacefully at her home. A visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 22nd, at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids. Georgie Elizabeth Waters, age 49, of Scapoose, Oregon, passed as she lived unexpectedly on February 6th. Georgie was an avid reader and lifetime learner. She bought countless instruments and music stand for each, teaching herself how to play them. Georgie had a generosity of spirit reserved especially for children. She was known to give books, erector sets, and harmonicas to her niece and nephews or neighbor kids. She procured kaleidoscopes and handed them out to children on a trip to town. No memorial listed. Patricia Ann McGrain of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, died on February 6th at the age of 57. Over a three-decade career in Philadelphia, she worked with several public health and wellness organizations, including the National Youth Violence Prevention Center, Philadelphia Safe and Sound, and PHMC. Again, no memorial listed. David L. Ganson, age 72, of Hoffman States, Illinois, formerly of Cedar Rapids, passed away unexpectedly at home on February 14th. Arrangements are being made by Marizzo Funeral Home of Hoffman States, Illinois. Dave joined the United States Marine Corps after high school. He was stationed stateside at Camp Lejeune, the Marine Corps Depot in San Diego, and Camp Pendleton in Oceanside, California. He enjoyed spending time with family, camping, fishing, watching his girls play sports, and spoiling his pets. He was a handyman extraordinaire, a true Mr. Fixit. 
He was an avid fan of NASCAR and the Iowa Hawkeyes, and he was a member of the Painters Union, worked at General Mills, and was a maintenance supervisor. No memorial listed. Dwayne John Young, age 84, of Toledo and formerly of Cloutier, passed away February 9th at the Unity Point Health in Marshalltown. A massive Christian burial will be held Saturday, February 17th. That was yesterday. In 1971, Don purchased a farm west of Cloutier, where in addition to farming, he started his own business in the flooring industry. He left the Cloutier area, continuing floor covering, mainly in the Cedar Rapids and Marion areas. Julie Ann Cody, age 79, of Marion, passed away December 20, 2023. A memorial service will be held at 10 a.m. Friday, March 1st, at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Marion. Burial will follow the service and take place at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Julie was an active member of St. Paul's Lutheran Church. She loved to sew, play cards with her friends, volunteer at the church, and collect sewing machines. Kenneth Gledwood Jennings, age 96, formerly of West Union, passed away February 9th at Hallmark Care Center in Mount Vernon. Kenneth worked as a carpenter for Great Plains Supply and as a private contractor. In retirement, he moved to West Union. Kenneth was a lifelong learner and reader of nonfiction. His greatest joy was hearing about his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. A private family service will be held. And Susan Oleda Stuckey, born Susan Oleda Olmsted, born March 7, 1947, passed on February 13, 2024. She opened antique stores in Valley Junction and grew her event promotion business. The Celebration of Life is Wednesday, February 21st at Covenant Christian Church, 2772nd Street in Urbandale, with a gathering visit at 10 a.m. and the program at 11. William G. Hosford, known as Bill, age 78, of Marion, died November 8, 2023, of brain cancer. He joined the U.S. Navy Reserve while in high school and proudly served as a submarine radio man during the Vietnam conflict. He earned degrees in Massachusetts and moved in Iowa to 2001 to be closer to family and work as a teacher librarian until retirement in 2010. Bill's career included teaching, librarianship, and electrical engineering. He was an artist, published author, photographer, musician, model maker, and woodworker. Also an amateur radio operator, private pilot, beekeeper, and family genealogist. He volunteered with Boy Scouts, 4-H, Science Station, American Space Museum, and Battleship North Carolina. Bill's cremains will be interred privately in the family plot in Massachusetts. Turning to the sports page, Mike Kloss writes, Into the Stratosphere. Caitlin Clark aside, women's game has a lot of other good teams, players, and buzz in Iowa City. Billie Jean King phoned Lisa Bluter Wednesday night. That thrilled Bluter, who has idolized King and offered, borrowed, and shared King's phrase, pressure is a privilege. The administration's shoe was on the other foot this time. Billie Jean King called and expressed her excitement for our program and for Caitlin Clark's scoring record, Bluter said. That was pretty special to me. I can remember sitting on the couch with my parents in 1973 and watching Billie Jean King play Bobby Riggs and thinking, wow, we can play sport too. Wow was the operative word here Thursday evening. Sellout crowds for the Iowa women's program have been season long. Thursday was next level, the excitement and joy soaring throughout Carver-Hawkeye Arena. The way the 14,786 fans here and the millions beyond Elliott Drive have embraced Clark and Bluter's team has been next level. This is the 50th season of women's basketball at the University of Iowa. While Clark's star power rocketed the Hawkeyes into national consciousness, the launch pad was built slowly and steadily. Before Title IX, Iowa got in the women's basketball business, but it was the, at the level of intramurals in the beginning. In the Hawkeyes' first season, they lost to William Penn three times by an average of 51 points. They lost to Mount Mercy. Okay, you start somewhere, and William Penn and Mount Mercy had great established programs. Title IX, the 1972 legislation prohibiting sex-based discrimination in any education program, receiving funding from the federal government, swung open the doors of gyms and many other things to women. Now we have women who are Title IX babies that understand the value of sport and the lesson that can be learned from sport, Bluter said. They want to support it. We didn't have that 20 years ago. In the words of Ringo Starr, time takes time. A half century is a blink of an eye historically, but can be a slow slog when you want to see positive change. Yet here we are. In 2024, women's basketball has become big stuff in far more places than where it has long thrived, like Iowa State and Iowa. No longer do Connecticut and Tennessee own the women's game, with the two in possession of a combined 18 national championships. Really good teams are in a lot of places, and more are coming. The next Caitlin Clark isn't a generation away. In fact, she may be committing to the Big Ten next season. USC freshman guard Juju Watkins averages 27.7 points. Watkins scored 51 against Stanford on February 8th with what the Los Angeles Times described as a dizzying array of stepbacks, crossovers, and silky jumpers. Sound like anyone you know? 
As for this season's Big Ten, as good as Iowa is, it has major ne- major work to do to finish ahead of our or tied with Iowa, with Ohio State and Indiana. In bigger picture categories, the Hawkeyes are joining those teams and many others in winning. As women's players and teams keep improving, so do attendance and television ratings. Iowa went to the 1993 Final Four, so the school is far from new at winning. See Vivian Stringer had a Big Ten dynasty in her 12 years here with six Big Ten titles. But in 1993, Iowa hosted the NCAA Mideast Regional Semifinals and Finals, which the Hawkeyes won against Auburn and Tennessee. The Thursday night crowd for the Auburn game was 8,376. The Saturday afternoon attendance for the final was 12,343. If NCAA regional semis and finals were held at Iowa this year, ticket scalpers could pay off their mortgages and have enough money left to spend a week at a luxury villa in Lake Como. The public has never wrapped its arms around the WNBA. That will start to change once Clark is in its midst. Even though the games are from May through September, which has never been ideal, Presence of Clark with other present and future stars will only lift that league. If Clark was a hot ticket at Minnesota, Northwestern, and Maryland, and she certainly was, she'll be the same at WNBA games in those three metro areas. But living in the moment, Iowa's next game is in Indiana on Thursday. It is, of course, sold out. And a sports reminder, if you are a racing fan, of course, today is the Daytona 500 at the Daytona International Speedway in Daytona Beach, Florida. The race starts at 1.30 p.m. today. It's on KFXA locally, which is the Fox affiliate. The race distance is 200 laps or 500 miles. And finally today, turning to the time machine, a look back at the people, places, and events in eastern Iowa. Fittingly, on this Daytona 500 Sunday, we have the Flying Dutchman. Race car driver Gus Schrader broke speed records and died on the track. Diane Fannin Langton, correspondent. Even though he loved racing, August Gus Schrader was a cautious driver, telling friends he felt safer on the racetrack than on the highways. Schrader, born in Newhall in 1895, became known in racing circles as the Flying Dutchman, breaking records with his daring driving from the early 1900s into the 1940s before dying in a race right before he had planned to retire. Schrader gravitated to racing machines early, starting with motorcycle racing on county fair tracks in 1916. He moved on to cars. By 1922, he was placing first more often than not. The Labor Day races at the Johnson County Fairgrounds, sponsored by the Cedar Rapids Motor Club, awarded $1,165 in prizes. Schrader and his brother Emmett placed first and second in all of the professional auto races. Gus drove his Dodge Special and Emmett a Nash Special. Schrader spent the summer of 1923 breaking track records, two of them at Hastings, Nebraska and Aberdeen, South Dakota. Somewhere along the way, he acquired the nickname the Flying Dutchman. He headed to the Anamosa Fairgrounds for Labor Day races on September 3, 1923. He placed first in time trial heats for motorcycles, third in the five-mile motorcycle race, first in the six-mile motorcycle race, and first in the auto four-mile preliminary event. He would have placed third in the eight-mile motorcycle race, but took a serious spill turning into the straightaway. First reports of the accident said he was either dead or that his neck was broken. Neither was true, and he was back on the track in Marengo a few weeks later and in Kenosha, Wisconsin in October. Schrader spent the winter of 1929-30 building a new car to replace the Kinsey Special he had been driving. His new Fronty Ford, a Model T Frontenac, helped him become one of the best dirt track drivers in the nation. In Milwaukee, on September 2, 1931, he set a 25-mile world dirt track record of 18 minutes, 9 seconds in his Miller Special. He also set a record in the mile time trial of 41.19 seconds. Schrader and Indy 500 winner Lewis Meyer crashed during a race in Bakersfield, California Speedway in 1932. The accident landed Schrader in the hospital for two weeks. He entered the Indy 500 in 1935, but his car developed motor trouble in the 116th mile. He stuck to racing on dirt tracks all over the country after that. Schrader was the International Motor Contest Association's national sprint car champion eight times, winning from 1933 to 1937, and again from 1939 through 1941. Time trials for the association's 1938 Gold Cup races was scheduled at the Hawkeye Downs track in Cedar Rapids on May 29, 1938. Schrader's new car was an Offenhauser Miller built in Los Angeles. Before 8,000 fans at the Downs, he set three new world records for a half-mile track. His time trials record was 25.23 seconds, breaking his own 25.6 record. He won the seven-lap event by a car length and won the 10-lap event as well in a record-setting 11 minutes, 51.5 seconds. Galloping Gus was back at the Downs in 1940. Although he was faster than his nearest competitor, Emery Collins, by 0.5 seconds in time trials, Schrader lost the seven-lap race by two lengths. Schrader was determined 
to beat Speedway champ Jimmy Wilburn from Portland, Oregon in a five-mile race at the Downs on August 10, 1941, but he finished seconds behind Wilburn. It was the seventh time out of ten races that Wilburn had bested Schrader that year. It was the last time Hawkeye Downs Dust would cover Schrader's car. Three weeks before Schrader planned to race at the Louisiana State Fair in Shreveport, he told Cedar Rapids friends he was retiring from racing. He was 46 and had made plans after the Louisiana race to take his wife Eunice on a deer hunting trip to Canada. The track at Shreveport was dusty October 22, 1941. Spectators could barely see when the nine-time dirt track champ locked wheels with his nemesis Wilburn's car, sending Schrader, Schrader flying nearly 15 feet into the air. As Schrader was catapulted into the air, his helmet and shoes fell off, the Shreveport Times reported. Falling on his head, he suffered a skull fracture and concussion, but no other broken bones. Racetrack followers said that if his helmet had not fallen off, Schrader most likely would have survived. Schrader, who had driven in more than 1,100 races, died of a cerebral hemorrhage. Wilburn was not injured. Schrader's funeral was held at Turner Chapel in Cedar Rapids on October 25th, and his body was taken to Los Angeles for burial. Hours have passed since the night crew called to break the news of Gus Schrader's tragic death, and it's still hard to believe that the old Flying Dutchman has faced a starter's barrier on this earth for the last time, veteran sports reporter Tate Cummins wrote in his Gazette Red Peppers column October 23rd. Schrader was a hard man to know intimately, supremely confident of his ability to cope with any situation which might arise on a racetrack, and so utterly fearless his very presence in a race caused countless drivers to settle for second place, or worse, before the race ever started. With all his driving courage, however, Schrader was probably the most careful driver in the business, keenly aware of the hazards he faced, and determined to run his string out to retire in comfort on the means his hazardous career made possible. And that brings me to the end of reading the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 18, 2024. I have been your reader, Sharon Faldudo, reading to you from my kitchen table in Coralville. Remember that you can access a recording of this or any other IRIS recording at any time on our website, iowaradioreading.org. We also welcome your comments, so if I'm not reading the columns you want, or if you're wondering why I'm reading the columns I am, please leave a comment, iowaradioreading.org. And thank you for listening.